Hello, this is Real Estate Insights, the podcast from Savills that leaves no stone unturned in its examination of the property world. Today we're asking, what can the University City of Cambridge teach other cities about attracting life science companies? Cambridge has got the largest cluster of tech in the whole of Europe. We've only got a population of 280,000 people, and yet we've got around 2 to 3 million square feet of laboratory space built and available for pharmaceutical companies. And shouldn't our capital city be an obvious destination for these sorts of businesses? The foremost universities for that science is, is UCL and Imperial. They're both in London. And the reason that the companies that we're acting for want to be in London is because they want access to the graduates that are coming out of those universities who are going to be doing their research. I'm Guy Ruddle, and with me to answer those and many other questions are four of the very best. Rob Sadler heads up Savile's Cambridge office and specialises in business-based development in the life sciences sector. Hello, Rob. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. Representing London, so to speak, is Ollie Thurston. He's head of the London Commercial Development Team at Savile's, and there aren't many big London projects going on at the moment that he isn't some involved in in some way or another. How are you, Ollie? I'm very well, thank you, Guy. Morning. Tom Mellers is a specialist in commercial property throughout the southeast of England and recently acquired quite a lot. So 76,000 square feet in White City and 50,000 square feet somewhere else uh, for a, a manufacturing thing for one life sciences client. Is that right, Tom? That's correct. And five years ago, they were six people in Tottenham Court Road. Really? So that shows the scale of these of these companies and the growth rates. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And James Dexter is an associate project manager who's been working with a number of life sciences clients on, James, specifically the sort of the technical requirements that, that they have and that, and that they need out of property. Yes, very much so. So where I come in is I act on the project man- management side of things to assess the technical requirements and make sure we can form the right team to deliver the project. So, gentlemen, I think the first question, Rob, perhaps for you, is why are we talking about this sector? Is is life sciences a particularly important sector in the property world? Um, Well, definitely. I mean, firstly, you know, just think about the life science sector and the types of businesses that we're dealing with. Um, We're all getting older. Uh, and all this new uh, found wealth that is being invested into these companies uh, to cure all the many diseases, uh, it is almost recession-proof. Uh, and therefore, there is an enormous amount of investment, inward investment from overseas, looking at how they can develop these companies um, and take them forward. And where we've kind of, or have to play catch up, is against the states. The states have been doing this for for many, many years. And actually, some of the larger pharma companies that we now see um, based in the UK, this is where they have originated from. Um, When I said at the beginning that that what can other places learn from Cambridge. Is Cambridge really the sort of where it's all at or, or, or is that a, an oversimplification? Um, it, it's not actually, but if you stand back and just look at the, the, some of the statistics, Cambridge has got the largest uh, cluster of tech in the whole of Europe. And yet when you look at the basic statistics, we've only got a population of 280,000 um, people. Um, and yet we've got around two to three million square feet of laboratory space built and available for pharmaceutical companies. Compare that to London, uh, and London population 8 million, mm. 80,000 square feet. Really? So, the, so well, sorry, you had how many million, do you say, in Cambridge? 
Three to four. Three million. to four million versus yep. 80,000. Yeah. And should London be doing more? I mean, because, you know, there's lots of other stuff in London, Ollie. You don't, you know, we've got, we're the best at, uh, in almost everything. Do well, I think that's been, been part, of the, part of the story, really. I mean, London is, is definitely behind the curve in terms of uh, the, the wider UK, but also the, the States, as Rob's just said. And part of the problem has been that London has a lot of other um, drivers for for success for occupancy of, of commercial space. The office market has had a, a financial um, uh, or a wider tech grounding for some time now, and that's driven a lot of demand. But but as this sector um, evolves, as the, as the tech side of it evolves, London I think is now waking up to the need to provide uh, space and the, and the value in doing that. And Tom and James, the. Uh, are we talking about very different requirements from normal office space? Uh, I would say uh, where Cambridge has done very well is it's delivered space that can cater for laboratory use. And that is where James and I find very often that London is sadly lacking. So our clients in London are typically having to adapt existing office buildings to deliver lab space, which is expensive and technically very challenging. Is it? Yes. I mean, frankly, this all comes down to the services. These buildings are designed by the landlords in order to cater for your classic office occupier. So you're talking about a traditional Cat A install where any occupier can go in and fit out the space for an office. When we're talking about the labs, architecturally, it's very easily managed. Um, However, it's the base build services, it's your mechanical, electrical and public health services, which really challenge. Um, The requirements of a lab traditionally are much greater than that of an office. Yeah, that's just sort of lots of things you have to Correct. infrastructure type Correct. stuff you have to have in there. Yeah. But the, the the problem is, does it mean does that mean that that this this sort of space has to be for this sort of purpose, or can it be more flexible than it, that? It can you can adapt, but typically what we find is an office occupier might have to spend a certain amount of money doing their fit out within the office space to make it suitable for their staff to work in. Uh, a lab will have to spend three to four times that to enable laboratory use within that building. So it's really expensive, and it's also really expensive for landlords to develop buildings that can cater for lab use. So you have to have much bigger risers, you have to have potentially bigger floor-to-ceiling heights. There's all sorts of challenges, and ultimately that means it's more expensive and you have net less net-lettable space, so it, you make less money out of it. And, and you have to ask, well, what's, it doesn't work everywhere. So the question we always get asked, well, what's the magic source? What is it all about Cambridge? Why does it work in Cambridge and why doesn't it work in other university towns and why isn't it working in London? And the magic source is you need uh, access to the universities um, and it needs to be you know, one of the top universities in the world. You need access to a, a first-class teaching hospital. Um, you need talent. Um, and if you haven't got talent, the companies won't come. And but the fourth does... thing is you need access to venture capital. Um, and if you haven't got those combination, that combination of those factors, then it's a difficult one to sell. And is that geographic, that access to venture capital? Um, I think there's a kind of, uh, there's a sort of a, a little bit of snobbery around it. You know, if you base your KP company in Cambridge, therefore you've got credibility and therefore you're going to open up doors in terms of venture capital, whereas if you've you know, based it in another part of the country. But it, it, is, a, it is a known factor that, that, or consideration in terms of where companies base themselves. If you're listening to this, you, you, you could you know, say, well, why should London, you know, London landlords bother? 
because you know it, it's difficult. But that's not you know, Tom. You're, you're the deal that you've done, uh, which is what a, a big chunk of it, seventy six thousand square feet, White City. Is it? I bet it's no coincidence that that's close to the new Imperial College no, campus. No, I think I think what's what's coming is um, a, a massive expansion of these companies in London. Um, and the companies I'm acting for a number of companies that are in the cell and gene therapy sector. Um, and uh, what I would say is that picking up from Rob's point about access to university, so the, f- the foremost universities for those um, that science is is UCL and Imperial. They're both in London. And the reason that the companies that we're acting for want to be in London is because they want access not set not necessarily to the scientific founders that are at those universities but they want access to the graduates that are coming out of those universities who are going to be doing their research so that's all in london they also need really good because they're dealing with patient material if that's the best way of describing it they need really good access to airports because they're flying this stuff around the world and it needs to be very accessible yeah um and i think the venture capital point is is really critical um because what's happened in the states venture capital is much more mature um, it's much longer term. There's much more of it. In the UK, the problem has been it's really short term. Companies have been really restricted on how much they can grow because they can't get enough um, capital. That has really started to change. So there's, there's companies out there that will take a much longer term view and pu- put much more money into these companies. So looking ahead then, Ollie and, and, and perhaps James, the... It's not easy to adapt existing space mm. to this sort of stuff. So it's about getting developers to think ahead when they're developing now? Uh, absolutely right. I think it, it's future-proofing your, your, your design as far as is possible to cater for uh, flexibility in, in, your, in your office demand. Uh, and you're seeing now developers waking up to this, um, this potential sector, whether it's because it's recession-proof, whether it's because there is a genuine premium there, or whether because the, the, the ease of delivering the space and the cost of it is, is being better understood. It's probably a combination of all three, um, allied with the venture capital and, and the talent that, that exists in London already. And James, it, it, are those requirements that you're helping people understand, are they changing all the time? Or are, are, are there any way of making it easier? I think the big thing for us is <clears throat> no two lab occupiers or life-size occupiers are alike. They've all got different requirements. They all need different spaces. So therefore, taking our experience of working with tenants going into buildings, we're turning that on its head and now helping landlords um, design their buildings, design their base buildings in order to suit future tenants. And I think working from Molly's point, flexibility is a really key one. It's making sure the building can cater for not just a specific tenant, but any one of the magnitude of tenants, whether in the biotech sector or anything else. I think a really key example is we're seeing a couple of landlords develop space and selling it as shell and core, so to say. So instead of delivering a traditional Cat A office floor, they're selling it as an empty shell and core for a tenant to then go in and do that work, which a landlord traditionally would. So it can be designed exactly as they want to. It's great to hear the stories that Tom was telling about the client taking a total of 125,000 square feet of space, which started with six people. But there are lots of you know, biotech or life science companies that start out as six people and end up as, well, two people or no people. There's, there's a, a big attrition rate, definitely. And that, that is a, a risk that I suppose landlords, not all landlords are comfortable with. So if you go and let 30,000 square feet in your 
in your nice shiny new office building to a biotech company that is a startup because they all are startups um, because that is that's the way that this research gets done um, there is a risk inherent within that even though they're well funded through venture capital but, but and what... this is where we see uh, people talk about a lot about clusters and the formation of clusters and the fact that when you look at the the creation of these science parks because they don't tend to be individual buildings uh, on their own, they will have the incubator space for the startup companies, the grow on space, you know, the space for the HQs, etc. So they've got that whole flow, and this clustering effect. Then you start to see it uh, with more than one science park, and then these science parks then tend to specialise in, in in certain aspects of science. So they don't actually st- um, compete against each other. You know, you'll find occupiers will sort of migrate to a certain park because of the types of sciences that they attract. Um, so it doesn't become a, a, a cost point of view. And that's what you're starting to see in White City now. Where yep. you, you've got that, that kind of community and, the, and the, the ability to cater for the different growth stages of companies. But the other thing that's interesting about White City, from my perspective, is the fact that you've got life science occupiers in the same building as media tenants or whatever it might be. So it doesn't have to be an exclusively life science community. You, you know, and, and to some extent, it benefits from not being that. If you talk to those occupiers, they like the fact that there's high quality amenity, there's a bit of diversity in the, in, in the occupier pool. And that kind of, that mixed use story, particularly in an urban environment such as London, which might be a little bit different from some of the greenfield sites in Cambridge, I think is quite important. And I think will give yeah. developers and landlords confidence going forward. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's the, that, that point that uh, Ollie just made about how mi- having mixes of, of occupiers in a building, like lab companies, life science companies, they want exactly the same as any other company. They want to be able to have nice, trendy space that's very accessible, that uh, attracts their staff, helps them get new staff, retain existing staff. They want amenities. They want all this. They, they want to be cool. They're not, they're not just people in lab coats. They want to be cool. And they are cool, aren't yeah. they? They are <laughs> they cool. Are. I think the is there a knowledge deficit here? I'm just wondering whether you know there's just a lack of understanding amongst landlords and developers and what have you that they need better. I think it has. Be- it is becoming a specialist market, as the office market is, as the logistics market is. So you, we we are finding that, uh, traditional developers actually seeing this as a real opportunity, and therefore they're putting teams, specialist teams that know the types of businesses and the types of companies and the types of properties that they need to develop. So it is becoming not a niche, but a, a specialist market. I think people are looking into it in a big way, much like they are in the, in the kind of co-working sector and the, and the service office sector, which is a little bit more advanced. But definitely the developers are looking at it. They're looking at retrofitting space and how do you, how do you expect new, new space for occupiers. Now, we're talking about science. Uh, uh, which relies on data a lot and statistics. So there's never been a more appropriate Real Estate Insights episode to have the Savile standout statistic than the life sciences one. I hadn't prepared that. I just thought of that just a second ago. That's not bad, is it? (laughs) So I need from each of you, and you've been warned, right, about the Savile standout statistic, a sort of something, it doesn't have to be massive, just something that makes people think, oh, blimey. Something like that. Who wants to go first? You're all looking quite nervous now. It's not, it's not a test, you know. Tom's ready to go. He's like Tom's teacher's pet. He's got a hand up. Say, please, me, sir, me, sir. I thought sir. of a good one this morning. Go on, then. Um, the the um, venture capital point that we were talking about. So I just looked this morning at venture capital funding into life sciences companies in London. 
So between 2017 compared to 2018, there was a 146% uh, increase in venture capital into um, startup uh, life sciences companies, which is 196 million to uh, 483 million. And I think it's just literally the tip of the iceberg. These these companies, this technology is all really coming and it's it's going to be expanding massively. There you are. That's a standout stat. The Savile standout stuff. That's exactly what it's meant to be. James, what about you? I think it's only fair, representative of the technical side of things, uh, I've already mentioned a technical stat. And cool. I think the, the one which probably represents the greatest challenge when we are looking to put tenants into buildings such as this is your traditional office space will require one air change an hour. That is fairly well-renowned throughout the industry. With labs, we're finding it very hard to justify any less than six air changes an hour for your most basic lab. And when you were working all the way up to the general manufacturing facilities, that could be as high as 40 to 60 sometimes. Ollie, I'm guessing you're going to be slightly less techie than that. <laughs> and what gives you that impression? No, you're <laughs> absolutely right. And But it's a, it's a similar tip of the iceberg um, stat to, to Tom's, albeit coming from a different perspective. I think if you look at the, what is it, 87,000 square foot of, of lab space at the moment, if you, if you add up the, the pipeline of space at the uh, emerging hubs in, in London, so, so White City, uh, Euston King's Cross, Whitechapel, London Bridge and Waterloo, you, you're looking at potentially seven or eight million square foot of space. Now, a lot of that is, is and probably will be office space, but it just shows the potential of some of these, these hubs to, to cater to this growing demand. And Rob, Mr. Cambridge, you get the last you word. Left, yeah, um, <coughs> just to demonstrate how important the university connections are to this field, uh, we've done a bit of research and we've worked out that in the last 20, 25 years, the University of Cambridge has invested over £1.5 billion into life science businesses. Wow. Yeah. Really? £1.5 billion? billion pounds. Yeah. That is a lot. Anything that starts with a B is <laughs> yeah, a lot of millions. money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Guys, it's been absolutely fascinating. I can't tell you, it's always amazing. It's always fascinating when we when we do these podcasts. Thank you very much for that. Have you enjoyed yourselves? Absolutely. Very yes. much so. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Excellent. That's our, our main purpose in life. It's been great to, great to have you here. So that's it for this episode of Real Estate Insights. If you're not already a subscriber to us, then please feel free to become one using your usual podcast provider. You can also go backwards. You don't have to just listen to future podcasts. You can go backwards to th- all sorts of things like how e-commerce is radically changing the way we think about warehouse space across Europe and uh, a look at what workers really, really, really want out of their office space. In the meantime, thank you for listening. See you next time. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. Savills accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of, reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content. Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast. This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.